When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A reading from All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Bernstein had been told by Sussman to take Monday and Tuesday off. On Wednesday, he'd set out to learn what he could about Charles W. Colson. He called a former official of the Nixon administration, who he thought might be able to supply some helpful biographical data. Instead of biography, the man told Bernstein, whoever was responsible for the Watergate break-in would have to be somebody who doesn't know about politics, but thought he did. I suppose that's why Colson's name comes up. Anybody who knew anything wouldn't be looking over there for real political information. They'd be looking for something else. Scandal. Gossip. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is someone who, uh, when we both started, um, there's a lot of sort of new crop of film minds that came up and contributed to a bunch of different really talented collectives of people who were sort of trying to break through at the same time. And what happens in those collectives before, you know, in Australia, it was a site like Graffiti with Punctuation, which still sort of um, kicks on and exists and sites in the States like Movie Mezzanine, our brothers um, from Sam Fragoso and also some other Aussies in, in there. But Sam being the sort of main engine behind the site is what happens is you have these little engines that are trying to create little editorial kind of processes for one another to kind of groom talent um, organically and then what happens as it did with movie mezzanine and graffiti with punctuation you have really talented writers in 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 their own rights and they go off and they create their own careers and they get jobs doing writing and you get really happy or people just abandon the journey it's either one of the two Uh, and and what and what happened is i was very lucky as the editor of graffiti with punctuation i worked with some of the great up and coming um and, and now established australian film writers but I got—I was very lucky for a brief moment in time to work on Movie Mezzanine. And I was very lucky to work with the person I'm talking to. Because what happened was, in these little collectives, you find people that you work with who have incredible minds, who are just so supportive. And you immediately go, no, that person's actually amazing. Like, there's, there's talent and then there's talent. And so... My guest today is the talent. He's writes for Pace Magazine. He has now been part of the New York Times, which we're going to talk a little bit about because it's very prescient to what we're talking about today with all the president's men. But he's also just one of my favorite people to read as a film mind and was responsible for the Heat musical fantasy casting that was possibly one of my favorite episodes of One Heat Minute. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend, Carl Turner. Carl, welcome to all the president's minutes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the incredible intro. You're way too kind. It was such a pleasure to be able to work with you at Movie Mezzanine and to also to be on One Heat Minute. Um, and I think the trend now is that every podcast that Blake starts will be a movie that I've never seen and now have the opportunity to, opportunity to watch because I 
not unlike he had never seen um, all the president's men. So I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. That's the test. I'm going to just, I'm going to be shooting the shit with a few people about what the next project is. And if Kyle hasn't seen it, I feel like that's a good, that's (laughs) like a, that's like, okay, we're in the right area. Let's just keep it in that area. And they're really good. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. This, um, this particular minute is the 19th minute of Alan J. Pakula's, 1976 masterpiece all the president's men so you are fresh to this did it have did it have a you know what it's like in the sort of film twitter universe did not seeing this movie have a guilt associated with it that was kind of like i'm just not going to mention to people that i haven't seen this or or was it something that you're like no i'm definitely going to get to that at some point i'm more the latter it's more like i'll get to this at some point um i don't i don't quite know why it took me as long as it did because uh, my dad was really into paranoia thrillers oh, my yeah. dad was also really into watergate um also um, mob, mob stories and whatnot which which is separate but he had an investment in kind of the intricacies of corruption um especially as it was res- uh, especially as it related to the United States government. So it was surprising to me that I hadn't gotten to it earlier, especially as a young, as a younger um, film buff as a kid. So I'm glad that I finally got to it now as an adult, given like the context in which I'm watching it. In. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which doesn't need to be spelled out, but you know, <laughs> you know, we, we don't, we don't need to go into that too much, especially as a person who lives in New York and uh, in, in the greater New York and uh, has to experience you know, all the the Trump of it all. Um, did you see? <laughs> did Did you see as your dad was like a fan? I love hearing stories like this. Did you see as your dad was a fan of paranoia thrillers? Any other ones at the time, or maybe any other Paculas that you but didn't get around to seeing all the presidents? He was a fan of Clute, but I didn't watch Clute until uh, I was older. Yeah, older. Yeah, okay. Clute. Um, he probably, was probably 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 good because that's a, like yeah. an age appropriate decision. <laughs> yeah. Does Odd Man Out count as paranoia? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it, sort of. it predates it predates a lot of the um, Watergate adjacent films. Yes, um, but Odd Man Out, he loved the conversation. He showed me. He showed me the conversation. Yeah, that's that's having that is having an immediate dialogue with this movie, the, especially the way that mm-hmm. the conversation was produced. You know, the the funny story is that when Coppola comes back to make Godfather part two, instead of like Paramount having all these demands, he gets to make the demands. I'm writing an opera in San Francisco. I'm making Mm. the conversation with Gene Hackman. Uh, I'm directing the Godfather and I'm doing them both in the same year and Mm. bang, bang, bang. It all happens. And like, yeah, both of those movies are in different ways are having immediate dialogue with, uh, with power. Great. Well, Mm -hmm. let's, let's dive into this because it's one of my favorite it's one of my favorite concepts here of like the supportive Jack Warden, supportive editor, Harry sort of sitting behind Woodward and giving him the encouragement to, to actually go forward and do this and having you back. And it's kind of something that we, uh, do you think he's supportive? Yeah, he, oh yeah. Well, I think that we, we can get to it. I, I like this moment of like, he's, he knows he's not great yet but he's got right. faith that he's going to be good. So it's like, he's kind of got uh-huh. his back, but then at the same uh-huh. time, his way, it's like that tough love, like, Hey, you're both on the story. Don't fuck it up. Like I'm that sort right, of, right. there's that ethos that sort of hangs over mm-hmm. it. Like, don't mess this up. But the story's got legs. This guy's got passion. And mm-hmm. I think you would know as an editor in your turn, your time being an editor as well and being edited, 
that sometimes mm. you you see someone's work and you're like, there is so much potential in that, even though it might not mm. be great off the first read, but you're like, there's potential. That person's like, got mm. a, they've got an interesting take and um, mm. or, or they've got a great work ethic or something like that. It's like, we just got to tease it out of them, however that is. And that's what, that's what I love about this movie from an editorial perspective is like that it's not just abandoned. Like they're just like, mm. they, they've got these journos and they're trying to make them amazing. And, and they mm. grow into themselves. But let's watch the minute. It is mm. the 19th minute. Unlike Heat, there are no, like, multiple weird director's cuts and versions and uh, American versions, U.S. versions. It is what it is. Uh, it is literally... Thank goodness. Thank goodness, indeed. <laughs> um, the 20th minute is we kicks off at 19 uh, minutes on your dial, and uh, Kyle and I are going to watch together right now, and then we're going to come back mm-hmm. and talk about it. Be careful how you write it. Looks like we got a White House consultant linked to the buggy. Harry, this isn't a police story anymore. This is national. We need a top political writer on it. I don't want it. They're all over the goddamn map covering the primaries. Besides, this guy has busted his ass. He's been on this paper for only nine months. What's the matter with you? He's a humper. Well, what has he been writing about? Rat shit in restaurants? Because he's had no experience. He got a few of them closed, didn't he? Minor incidents, small government agencies. Have Mr. Moffat come in here, please, and see if Mr. Bradley's free. I want Ben to hear this. Sure, Moffat will want the story for the national deaths now that we've built it into something. Even Bernstein's busting his ass. I read that cockamamie memorandum he wrote on the break-in. All right, so some of it was bullshit. What is the matter with you? You told me yourself you are going to fire him last month. Look, he wants on the story bad. They both do. He knows a lot of people. There it is, my friend. Amazing. Now... Speaking of you, let's bring this back to you before we dive into this minute. Okay. You've recently written for the New York Times, one of Mm -hmm. the most prestigious papers in the whole world. And at the time was tit for tat. And when you watch this back, a lot of people go, oh, it's exclusively focused on the post. But they they are mentioning the New York Times a lot. They're, they're mm-hmm. mentioning that the times get the story. They're mentioning yeah, that, yeah. you know, they're mentioning the sort of silly fear. You know, they're joking about, you know, where you're someone's afraid of Richard Nixon. You're afraid of Walter Con- uh, Walter Cronkite coming to steal the story. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the experience of, you know, multiple editorial, editorial layers before publication mm. in 2020? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, what I think is interesting about this film is the way in which uh, what how the story occupies the the film between the characters, what role it plays. Um, the story in terms of of the way in which they're reporting, how it becomes like a product, yes. and how they're scared that someone else is going to release the product first. Yes. Um, it becomes this little scrimmage, basically. But I, my, I started writing for the New York Times um, in December of 2018, I believe, and that I had I knew an editor, um, an acquaintance through a friend, and I had been thinking of pitching the story about Lars von Trier, and I I pitched the editor that I knew or was acquainted with, and he said, uh, this isn't for us, but this is a really good pitch, and I've been keeping an eye on your writing, um, so I might actually have a story for you. Keep an eye out in your inbox. Uh, you might be hearing from me in a couple of days. And I thought that that was just like a form thing that editors say to writers, <laughs> because I you know, you, you that's hear a from really nice way to let you down. If it was, a, yeah, if it yeah, was a absolutely. letdown, it's really nice. Yeah, 
I mean, I've had that experience where I'll pitch editors and, and they'll say, I might have something for you or feel free to pitch again. And it's they're very kind about it. And I yes. don't begrudge them at all. They're busy. I understand that they're busy and they're not thinking about me. <laughs> um, so they don't need to. They, they've got their own jobs. But I did end up getting an email a few days later saying, my boss is going to e- email you. So it was an email to another email. <laughs> and then and then. Stephanie Goodman reached out and said, so we want someone to write about drag queens because they've appeared in A Star is Born and this Netflix movie called Dumplin' and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And would you be interested? And I was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 am, I would love to. I, I'm honored. So I fretted for many days about writing it and I finally did it and I sent it to many people, uh, <laughs> many patient friends who asked me what they thought and I tried to turn in the best draft because it's the New York times. Oh yeah. And it was really such an incredible learning process. Uh, the editor that I worked with was very happy with my, with my draft. Um, there were definitely notes, but it was really interesting being able to work with her and go through a couple of round of edits. And, um, I'm not sure. I imagine this is true of many daily papers like mm. the, the times but there you go through multiple edits before it hits publication for this particular piece i went through three editors um I, and three readers so i worked with the initial editor and then there was a second editor um that went through to make sure that everything was clear from someone who wasn't from an arts desk perspective yes um and then from there i went to another copy editor and then from there I went to publication and it was in the sunday times and then from then on, I've done a couple of re- a few reviews for them, and then I did a- another piece for them last June um, that was about programming um, repertory queer cinema in New York during Pride, and that was a really nerve nerve wracking piece because that was the very first reported piece I had ever done, where I like went out to get quotes and inter- and interviewed different programmers and curators and uh, queer cinema experts, and that was also an incredible learning experience and. Uh, my editor, the editor that I had initially pitched Lars von Trier piece, I worked with him, um, Mikado Murphy. He's an incredible writer and editor. He was very understanding of a couple of the mistakes that I made, but I didn't, I did not fuck it up. I'm sorry, am I allowed to swear this? <laughs> yes, you are. I did you're not right. mess it up. I did not. You're, you're, you're on the you're on the, you're on the edge of the scene that says you're on, you're on the edge of the scene. You do encroach slightly into the next minute, but just say would 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 saying you're on the story. Don't fuck it up. So you're allowed. You're allowed. You're very much allowed. I'm to allowed say. to say, I did not fuck it up. Um, <laughs> so it, that was an, also a really a really valuable opportunity to have in terms of how you go and report a story, even if it's something as fairly niche as film programming because yes. i i did not go to journalism school i went for film studies and <laughs> you don't need a film studies degree to write but i mean having the background does help yes and having being able to do the homework and um the, i think with most writing it just takes self-initiation and and with editing it just requires an open mind and cooperation and i tried to take that approach whenever I was editing someone, whenever I've edited someone even um, informally or formally. And so going through the process of having multiple editors look at your work and being making sure that you're clear that you have a, that that there's a a smoothness to your voice when approaching this much broader audience than I think most of us are used to. Yeah, we're I. I'm normally writing for like a, a publication that's 
that has a specific arts or or culture focus. So having this much broader audience was really interesting and and being able to work with editors to tailor my voice in that way. Yeah. It's, 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 um, that it's something weird to be said, like when everything is so niche, I think is exactly the point because our little co-op co-ops that we were talking, that I was sort of talking about in the introduction, you are writing for film geeks. You are writing Mm -hmm. for peers. You are writing for people who are seeking out writing on film. And so Mm -hmm. when you, what would be so cool, and I imagine you did it, you know, you buy the Sunday times and you see your stuff in amongst everything else. It's like Mm -hmm. people are, people are going to seek it out because they love the arts programming in the Sunday times because it is really Mm -hmm. terrific. Mm -hmm. Or they're just going to be reading one of many like crazy Trump stories that day and then stumble into Mm -hmm. your piece and go, Oh, this is really great. Or I'm really interested in that. Oh, that's great. So Mm -hmm. it it just, it it must feel bizarre. And exactly like you said, there's no stuttering of tone and like, and, and the clarity, especially now, in the minute that we're talking about two guys writing a story, like having mm-hmm. the clarity of tone between these two very divergent voices. No, these stories need mm-hmm. to be like the singular voice. You are going to be wood scene mm-hmm. in this and that's what it is. Right. You're going to write that and that's how it's going to work. I mean, what's fascinating about going through the times process is that I, I don't, I didn't have the experience of having my voice defanged, Yes, but it is clearly it was clearly edited to fit the time style, which I'm yes. fine with. Like yes. I, I've had much worse editorial experiences where like my piece was basically rewritten. That didn't happen at the times. Yeah. I, I mean, an example that I can point to of another writer is Andrea Long Chu, who is this um, writer and, and queer theorist. And she had written about um, her experience of her um, uh, gender confirmation surgery. And she has this very biting wit that's, clearer in publications like book forum and affidavit and uh other other publications and plus one but when she wrote for the times it was very clear that she was writing for the times yes like her voice was still the same but it was different and modulated which i think is really fascinating to consider even when you're doing reportage like bob woodward and and carl Whose last name I'm forgetting? Bernstein. Bernstein. I was about to Bernstein, cover you Bernstein. there. <laughs> My apologies, um, Carl Bernstein. So I think that that process is, is really interesting. Yeah, and and what also is interesting is how cer- some voices just seem to circumnavigate uh, that defanging process, or some people some people have such a way of writing, no matter what publication they're writing for, that it is so you know, blisteringly clear that it is them. They are unmistakable. You know, like, a, um, for example, at the times Manola, no one writes like Manola. Like Manola is Manola's voice everywhere. And someone like Tennessee Coates, like when that, when he, when he's writing, it's like, there's no one like that, that voice in the world. Like you're just like, mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. him. Like they, they can't, they can't, yeah. it's unmistakable. So yeah, really, really interesting. And it's so fascinating in a world where, you know, um, uh, and I think that that was like the aspiration. I, I don't, I don't know. I must, I must try and get Sam onto this show um, and grill mm. him about it. But like, I think that that was our Absolutely. aspiration maybe as, as geeks was to like nurture each other's voices to get mm-hmm. up. And I think the best little collectives that emerged and saw the most people go and be successful with those were just like, we're just going to try and make the, we're going to try and help mm-hmm. each other. We're going to watch movies like all the president's men to try and learn how to do this for people who never mm-hmm. went to journalism school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think the experience that we had at movie magazine 
this is just going to become a nostalgia fest. <laughs> but I think the experience was so, so valuable. I still think about it quite often. I mean, whenever there's a, a young writer who is, uh, whose piece is getting dragged through the mud on, on Twitter, um, I try not to do the same thing, but I talk about like editorial responsibility. Yes. One of the, I, I tried writing a piece back in movie mezzanine days about like the, age of the um, woman's picture it was supposed to be attached to the age of adeline yes um that movie with blake lively where she doesn't where she doesn't age (laughs) and i was working with tina hasania who's a really wonderful writer and critic based in canada and she after a couple drafts realized that i really didn't know what i was talking about and and a lot of my conjectures didn't make sense and uh this was based on like way way too much um, having read things about the thing that I was writing about as opposed to re- really embedding myself in the research, which yes. you know was I was which was not um, my best practice. <laughs> yes. um, but the fact that she and I worked on it and she called me out on it and and she wasn't like mean or anything. She was she was instructive and educational and we ended up having to kill that piece because it was her responsibility to not publish something that was, you know, me talking out of my butt, not really <laughs> being able to, to clarify or, or elucidate no, you're not, you're not, you're not incisive. You're not saying something that's right. valuable. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I think that there's a certain point with, you know, when you're just doing like, um, when you, when you're working on things, especially when you're just carving out little, um, little opinion pieces, sometimes those are the best to just like sanity check. Like, am I just completely mm-hmm. off, off the reservation? Mm-hmm. And those little editorial yeah. moments are just so great, especially when you're just like doing something as casual as a blog, right? Cause if you want people to read yeah. it and get value mm-hmm. out of it, um, uh, there's that, that's, that's really fun. All right. Let's, yeah, let's, let's, we must dive in to our minute here. We yeah. must, we must, we must talk about this moment, Robert Redford, Jack Warden playing Harry Rosenfeld, mm-hmm. Martin Balsam with some of cinema's greatest eyebrows we've ever seen uh, yeah. as Howard Simon. <laughs> um, here. And it's so funny that the beginning of this minute starts out with all of our conversation around it starts out with be careful how you write it. Mm-hmm. Be careful yes. how you write it. And so mm-hmm. this moment, you seem to be a bit sort of fuzzy about whether Harry Rosenfeld as in Jack thinks these guys have got potential. What, what was your thought pattern on that? I mean, my thought pattern on that was prior. There was, I feel like um, Harry had such an, uh, a, a tacitness or a reticence to let him do the story in the first place. And he didn't, he didn't really see any value in it. Yes. And I think this scene is him coming along to the idea of letting them yeah. do it, but I don't see it as, as uniformly supportive it's it, it seems to be more like okay let's see what you can do yes yes yeah no no i think i think that's a really fair point i my i guess where i sort of see that encouragement bit and in it's sort of in the very opening of this 19th minute as in mm. this beautiful shot of them both completely in like rich focus there we can see him sort mm-hmm. of looking over it is i feel like it's once woodward has demonstrated that he's been able to join the dots and also right. be a bit, um, be very calculating in the way that he's extracting the information, especially in the moments where they're like, and I got this really strange response. Um, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that that it's like his 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 light bulb moment, right? His awareness is clicking in. Like, okay, yeah. this is the, mm-hmm. this kid can do it. Um, but I do mm-hmm. agree with you, right? I've started to think about it. it's like there is this weird ownership that we would never be really aware of now, and definitely would be still probably present in the times. Maybe I'm not sure, but it's like the whole mm-hmm. concept of a metro desk. Like, can right. you imagine mm-hmm. of like? None of our little publications. It would be so funny if there was like, okay, cool. You're Blake. You're writing about Sydney mm-hmm. movies. And on the Sydney desk mm-hmm. is you and mm-hmm. three other people. And then, you know, mm-hmm. Kyle's on the New York desk and you guys can't possibly mm-hmm. be writing about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Cause that's, they can, mm-hmm. so I, I love that little, there is also his reputation is now on the line too, because mm-hmm. if he's grooming these guys to take this story and keep it in Metro, because it is a Washington break in, it's a Washington store, localized Washington story that has, national Mm. and international implications. It's really funny that he's like wrestling with that in this moment for himself. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's also wrestling with the possessiveness. Yes. And I think I have a suspicion that, um, that he is more interested at first, maybe in Carl's evolution as a writer at the desk. Yes. Because he, because they, he knows that they both want it. Yes. And I'm kind of wondering if in his head, He's thinking if these people are going to be in competition with one another, not not just like metaphorically, but also like writing this story. Like yes. who, if he isn't in his head is, is wondering, like, who's going to do this story better? Who's going to if is 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 Bob going to prove me wrong or that or prove me right, rather, that he can't actually pull this off? <laughs> yes. Or is Carl going to come through and, and bring it home like I think he's going to? Yeah, actually stop. You know, and in this minute, it's really funny. Like you told me three months, you're going to three months ago, you're going to fire him. That's uh, Howard Simon's Martin Balsam's character. And it's yeah. like and we're just on the precipice of that sort of revelation moment, but it's like you can see that where Carl has probably got the more natural flair of talent. He's not got that Mm -hmm. rigid disciplined approach of like structure, go from step one to step two to step three. And it's like, if you collide these two together, that's the best case scenario. If it could be written Mm -hmm. as, as cleverly um, and as incisively as Carl, but actually have the rigidity and the structure of Woodward. It's like this mesh is, that's how it's going to work. Yeah. Um, You need, you need Bob for the process and you need Carl for the, the um, narrativization process. Yes. Yes. But so, so it's funny. Like it's, it's funny. I can't think, I mean, really up until um, sort of, the amazing uh, times reporting around the Me Too movement and the Weinstein revelations. And and recently it's like, I hadn't really heard of like contemporary dynamic duos of reporters. Like, Mm. you know, you don't hear about it as much of several people being on a story and then becoming associated with the story. And then they're just there. They live, they live with it. Um, In our sort of, yeah, sorry, go. Oh, sorry. No, go, go on. No, I was just going to say, in our cultural circles, the only one I can think of is like um, uh, when, you know, I mentioned Manola, when Manola and A.O. Scott, Tony Scott, were wrote that sort of the, the 20 best movies or the 25 best movies of the century so mm. far and caused a lot of ruckus because it was like their shared opinions of what those 25 movies were. But you sort of don't, mm. you don't really get that like dual reporting as much in, mm. in modern context. I don't know what that is, whether it's just the mm. number of resources or whether it's just mm. not the way that it is structured ultimately. 
I think it really depends um, on the section. I think I, I see it quite frequently in political reporting and yes. business reporting yes. that you'll have like multiple people on a byline. And sometimes I've seen stories, especially in the Times and the Washington Post, um, sometimes the Chicago Tribune, where it'll be like three to five people. <laughs> yes. Where yes. you'll just need so many people. And, and the, as the United States is, is kind of, in the midst of an election season, I think having multiple people on bylines is just going to become um, more normal, normalized in the season. I think yes. that's very typical of uh, political of of election season political reporting, especially because you have multiple people reporting on um, different caucuses or different rallies and whatnot. Because you have to have multiple people there to get different perspectives, and you can't have one person necessarily interviewing all these different, you know, people at the rally and whatnot. And I, I think it's just the Be- difference because, because there's, between, there's the hangover of fear and loathing on the campaign trail, right? Which is yeah, like, yeah, which is like, well, that was amazing. There's also mm. some weird made up shit that Hunter S Thompson amused right. himself with. So for the integrity sake, mm. let's, let's imagine do doing, imagine doing like LSD and going to a Trump rally. I'd rather not, <laughs> but like, I think, that, I mean, you have, you definitely have a point. I think the difference between um, the Watergate investigation having multiple bylines and the Me Too investigation having multiple bylines versus the lack of exposure Mm. um, is that many of these stories that do have multiple bylines or multiple people reporting and whatnot is that they – which is not to disregard the the importance of of their work, but it just doesn't – Trans, it usually just doesn't transcend yes. their particular circles or their particular or the people who are already the the spaces and social contexts in which those stories are being reported. Yes. Um, it doesn't necessarily. I, I think there are multiple reasons as as to why those stories don't necessarily have as big of a reach. I think that has a lot to do with the ways in which information is disseminated now and the way we're just like um, totally bombarded with quote unquote content all the time, all yes. the time, all the time. And it takes a really something really huge for that to break through to matter to people who aren't already like engineered to be in those spaces. And then I think it also has to do with the way that reporting has changed more broadly. Uh, that so many journalists are on social media and they're already doing mini reporting and to, to what degree that becomes a story in and of itself that they're required to tell. Yes. And if that makes any sense. No, it does. And one of the things that both the me too reporting from the times and obviously from Ryan Farrow to, um, in, in the New Yorker, um, cause they were sort of working in somewhat partnership, right? They're dual Pulitzer mm. winners, um, for their mm. incredible work, but, and Watergate is th- that, that, duo and then singular with Ronan and Farrow and, and, and obviously, um, with Watergate, they Watergate, uh, is humming along and they don't actually know what the outcome is. So at the beginning, it's right. like they are, they are the dogs with a bone, so to speak, that don't actually know how far mm-hmm. this thing goes. And so mm-hmm. it, it's got that commonality with the later, uh, reporting from, um, from the me too movement and from uh, mm. uh, in that they're working in secret because of how sensitive right. the information is and how essential it is for the fact checking to happen and all of mm. that, because if they don't, 
the implications are so massive uh, and, and the, you know, the legal ramifications of that kind of accusa- accusation getting mm-hmm. out um, without the corroboration of witnesses and testimony mm-hmm. and fact-checking, et cetera, um, and just mm-hmm. many, many sources that have to corroborate the same story, um, the implications are so massive. So on both of those right. instances, they're just like grinding through mm-hmm. to get those details. I mean, my, I guess, a question that I have is whether there is more, there was more uncertainty in the... 70s working on the Watergate investigation, or if there's more uncertainty now working on an investigation like Me Too. Because on the one hand, there are fewer so, uh, there are fewer outlets in which to dump information. Yes. Um, Whisper Network certainly still exists, but um, you don't have people like subtweeting or <laughs> yes. um, dropping little hints or the, the the there is not a digital paper trail so to speak um in the 70s but on the other hand now there's so much information uh there is maybe too much information for people to process and to sort through and i have an enormous amount of respect for the people's whose job it is to be able to go through all those different networks who have to do research on reddit and 4chan and all of that when there is just um miles and and seemingly eons worth of things that could count as information for a story and whether that is that seems like more diffuse or more or murkier and harder to sort through in order to write and investigate and report a story yeah and and once you've got things like reddit and 4chan and things and it's such an interesting question. I don't know if we're going to be able to fully process it in like this decade. It feels like in, in, in a decade's time, we'll be able to reflect on it, actually have uh, definitive thoughts simply because you go, you know, at some, some points you immediately reflexively want to go, no, it's too diffuse. It's just a mess. Like the content is just mm-hmm. too, it's too voluminous. But then you, then the next, mm-hmm. in the next breath you go, well, on Reddit and 4chan, they were telling all of the stuff that was then later corroborated about Jeffrey Epstein, for example, like that on yeah. the news, like they were mm-hmm. telling that like a year and a half before it was public knowledge or like all, mm-hmm. you know, publicly verified in a, in a, in as rigorous a way as you sort of mm. announce as even on a culture piece, that's how rigorously mm. in a, in a, in a, in a big paper such as, you know, Washington Post and New York Times would operate. So it's just one of those things where you're just like, oh, it, it's hard to, it's, it's almost only able to be looked at reflexively, I think, in some ways right now yeah. because we just it's just too much. Yeah, you, you can never really process the present. I mean, the there's a Netflix documentary called Don't Fuck With Cats, yes. which is about um, the investigation into Luca Magnata, who murdered an exchange, a Chinese exchange student, and he was gay, and uh, there was dismemberment involved. But it, it initially, that story initially starts with um, a bunch of, like, amateur detectives on Facebook finding a, an animal abuse video on YouTube. And I think what this, what both all the president's men speaks to and this documentary and the me too investigation and the Jeffrey Epstein stuff is the way in which surveillance has changed so dramatically in the way that we understand yes. surveillance. Um, on the one hand, you have, again, fewer outlets and fewer sources of surveillance and, uh, in the 70s and during the Watergate investigation. But there are enough um, in which to cite, in which to investigate, in which to um, interrogate. Yes. But then you have and, – and these are being done by professional reporters. And yes. Whatnot. yes. Whereas something like Don't Fuck With Cats is a bunch of like random people on the internet 
who are playing gumshoe who <laughs> are i mean like the whole crux of that documentary is that we're watching people watch people it's very yes. rear window hitchcock-esque and that they're breaking down these little screenshots and these videos and whatnot and doing a, a very a, a pretty a full-on like amateur investigation and i think that just speaks to the way that we are so used to monitoring other people all the time and so used to being passively monitored ourselves anything that you can post on the internet is traceable it creates a paper trail and it's there's that line from the social network where like everything on the internet is ink not in pencil or something like that yes and i i think the juxtaposition between it and in an investigation, the 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 narrative of an of an investigation in the, all the president's men, and then the narrative of an investigation in Don't Fuck with Cats, there's there's striking um, differences and striking resemblances in in terms of how that process is done and kind of the ethics involved and and the way in which each each party is telling a particular story and editing it in a particular way for an audience. Yes. And it's so funny. You said that my dear friend, Maria Lewis, who's an author and uh, you know, it happens so much more with women. It's like, I, I started texting her a few times, you know, I'd see her out at like a place or something like that. And, I, and I'd text her and go, oh, how was that? How was that thing you were at that restaurant in Melbourne, for example, or, you know, you're, you mm. know, she's touring around on a book tour, et cetera. Or how was that place? Or how was this thing? And she's like, Oh, that was three days ago. Because mm -hmm. what some women have to do is not post where they are the moment w that they're there. So, you know, on the yeah. whole Instagram mm -hmm. thing is they're posting it a, a day later or a week later, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you don't want people to be able to track your exact movements because there are weird people in the world who sometimes do that um, to yeah, say, absolutely. you know, I know exactly where you are. So it's like this weird thing, but at the same time, yeah, it's right. It's like, there's the, the there is still that ink paper trail in all the president's men. And I just don't, I think that's the, like, this is like the awakening moment. Like there is this thing. Mm -hmm. Once this birth of surveillance happens, there is a paper trail. There is a, sorry. Can you still mm -hmm. hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I just cut out for one second in my headphones. Sorry about that. Um, sorry. There is a paper trail. There is ink. People are going to be able to find out what you're going to do. You're going to be recording in the white house <laughs> office, which is eventually where they get to. And it's like, people are going to be able to find out what you're doing and where you're doing it. Even, even if there is all this weird misdirection that's happening from a governmental level, it's like, no, we're going to, we're going to do everything to keep you accountable. We can do everything mm -hmm. to keep you accountable. Yeah. It's a chess game. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, and, but what's funny that you said that, I love how you said these are amateur gumshoes. It's like, we all kind of do that. There, You see so yeah. many things like these breakdowns, even like trailers, as innocuous as a trail. Oh, look at this. Oh, I can change the color and I can see this. It's like that little gumshoe inclination is everywhere. And like the, the Don't mm. Fuck With Cats one is super interesting um, because it's like mm. people taking screenshots, blowing things up, tracking people, yeah. checking this email, yeah. checking this down. Are, are you friends with this person? Okay. Like all that is just so crazy. It's just... And it's, yeah. it's maybe in a modern context, like maybe that's part of that sort of detective itch that this story scratches for me mm -hmm. and the people who help me examine it like yourself. It's like this, this does that. It does that, but it's in, I don't know. It's a very analog. We're so digital right now, but it's in that sort of beautifully mm -hmm. nostalgic analog moment yeah. as well. I do love that, that analog quality of this film. A great typewriter film. Oh. The work 
work is being done. And I like <laughs> one of the exciting things about this scene, not only of having someone say, when you write it, do it carefully and, and telling someone to, to go do it and to go watch through the window, all these different reporters, all these different writers, all these different editors at their desk. It's just the idea that, that something textual and tactile is being made. Yes. And I love writing very much, um, regardless of whatever format it is, but it does feel very special to be able to hold something of yours in print and to, to feel the weight of it. Yes. Even if it's something as like trivial as a movie review, it just, it's nice to know that like ink is there. (laughs) Yes. And I, I even had like, this movie does that really bad thing where, because as part of my preparation, I'm just watching it so much that like, I'll just sometimes second screen it while I'm watching a scene. Cause I've watched it so many times and I'll just go to eBay and like typewriter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ty- ty- typewriter. And I'm just like, Oh, the ink and the, the sound, the, the, the sound. Oh, just being able to do the whole ribbon thing. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and then even there's now like, of course in the digital age, there's like really great, and expensive digital like ones that you type on a typewriter mm-hmm. and you have to use the ribbon to like make it go to the next line and everything like that. It's mm-hmm. it's pretty mm-hmm. crazy. It's just like, oh, it's so it's so beautiful. It's so huge. And you can get those Bluetooth ones. I have I don't endorse that personally because I no. think that's it's weird. weird. And, it is weird. <laughs> um but I, I used to have a an electric typewriter as a kid and oh. I used to write drafts on it all the time. I wrote a, a short novella which was not very good. <laughs> it was a murder mystery. I don't recommend anyone read it. I think I burned it. <laughs> I love letters on it. You just talked about how valuable that tactile ink was. And you're, like, you're like, burn it, burn it's, it. It's got to go. Valuable. It's valuable until I recognize that it's trash, then burn it. Um, <laughs> but I have also considered, I've, I've looked up a few times since living in New York. I don't have the space really t- to have yeah. something as, as cumbersome as a typewriter, but I have considered it. And they're so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> they're still so they're still so crazy. And the, the other the other challenge that I have is like, say for example, someone who's um you know, someone who can churn words out such as yourself. Like if you if you if you did write that novella or that screenplay that you always wanted, it's like by the end of it, if it was really phenomenal and fantastic and it did have those scribbly notes on it and things like that ready to go, like it would be another exercise in pain to then transcribe that into a computer because no one yeah. else is yeah. going to do that mm-hmm. for you. Right. Like no one's doing that. Um, yeah. You're yeah. going to have I mean, to get on your computer somehow. When I was in high school, I used to write these satirical essays that were kind of like in the same tone as a David Sedaris or, or, or an Augustin Burroughs, but I would write them on my typewriter <sighs> and then I would have to transcribe them to the computer and that would just take hours and just like, I would think to myself, why did I do this? Like, I love having a typewriter and, and being able to feel the weight of a yes. key in that way. But it's also just a pain in the ass. Yes. A little it is, bit. It is completely a pain in the ass. Completely. What is the rest of the experience of this film for you? So, uh, you know, we've, we've talked specifics of this scene. We've talked about the nostalgia of this, this moment. I'm really curious because from that, from that lens of the paranoia thriller, like what is, do you see this movie etched in other movies that you've seen before? Or is it kind of refreshing, you know, in its, in its style? Cause I really would love to hear mm. you sort of riff on some of its style. Um, I definitely recognize the way in which the language of this film has been lifted in other films. Like spotlight is the obvious answer. Yes. Um, 
But even, I mean, the film that this reminded me most of is Citizen Four, the the documentary by Laura Poitras, because it is also about a group of people. It's like slightly different, but it is also about a group of people who have a story and are trying to figure out how to disseminate it, Mm. how to edit it. What the what most appeals to me about all the president's men is that it is about to me storytelling as much as it is a paranoia thriller to me it is about storytelling and the way in which someone has to narrativize and has to edit and has to stylize a story and having these two people work having having bob and carl work together to create the story together and watching it's like we're watching someone watch someone create the story and that is the same in season four in that you're watching laura poitras and Glenn, glenn greenwald and Edward Stone in a hotel room, like all under a blanket and whatnot, figuring out how to create this narrative, how to edit that narrative, give it to other people to then disseminate to a broader audience. That to me is just incredibly fascinating. It is to me like the nature of, about the nature of storytelling. Yes. And, and Both, both films and the responsibility of that, that dissemination, right? So you Mm -hmm. know, and and to your point of you know that beautiful moment where you recognize that the entire audience of the New York Times subscribers and people who are literally going to get that physical paper are going to get an opportunity to read your 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 great work um there's that moment where you know the entire world of the Washington Post and all of their all of their different channels that that then spits out to and then other papers and other and other media providers um having to quote and reference their story and then sort of you know dig in themselves into that into that detail mm. and then internationally things being picked up mm-hmm. internationally um, yeah there there are international implications in terms of the story that's being told and how it's told i mean what's another thing that occurred to me is how the washington post has changed yeah. in the time since this story was reported and in the time since this film was made um but like they uh, they picked up a slogan or, or um, adopted one in 2017 um that's democracy dies in darkness and I think what's interesting to me about that is that so much of this reporting was done in darkness. Yes. Yes. It was done in <laughs> literally. Literally in the dark. In in in, yeah. in dungeon like car parks or in di- mm-hmm. dingy and dark rooms or in or in dark mm-hmm. darkened porches. Garages. Where, garages. Yeah. It's 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 all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But no, so I think that they need a caveat that says sources don't. The sources kind of we get them sources, in the dark. We, we, yeah. still, mm-hmm. we, we still we still get them in the dark. Um, who would play Deep Throat in a musical? I don't know, but <laughs> that's another episode. That is a oh, that is definitely another episode. The musical. Um, what's so funny? A little incident because Mark felt uh, is now commonly recognised as Deep Throat, um, and. Hal Holbrook, who plays Deep Throat, was Bob Woodward's mm. suggestion. Bob Woodward was mm. like, "No, he's." There was a bunch of actors <laughs> that were going for it. He's like, "No, he's he he's he's great. I really like Hal Holbrook." And what's funny is that Hal Holbrook and Mark Felt look almost exactly the same. Yeah. They like they you put a photo of them next to each other, and it is like you are casting mm. someone from a book. Whereas that that level of detail, like. There is a cognitive distance between what Robert Redford looks like and what Bob Woodward looks like. No offense to Mr. Mm-hmm. Bob Woodward, but you know, Robert mm-hmm. Redford's like with the most beautiful actor of the seventies on yeah. screen playing you. So mm-hmm. it's taking some significant creative license, but um, yeah, it's really, really funny. Really funny. That's look. Did you see that biopic of Mark Fell that was with like 
Richard Gere or something. <laughs> I love that you said it's with Liam Neeson. And oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And, excuse me, what, what respect on Liam Neeson's name. Um, but no, I, it was with Liam Neeson and Bill Ibiri and I discussed it and uh, I've I've started watching it maybe six times and I just, it's ex, it is excruciating viewing. It is absolutely oh, wow. excruciating viewing um, because it is set in the, F, the halls of the FBI and it is set there with Mark, Mark Felt and, and watching these implications uh, of him of him sort of uh, revealing, you know, the inner workings of their investigation and what they're not able to withhold as a government um, organization. Um, but it is just re, you know, the challenge is Kyle, you know, what we sort of talked around a little bit in this film. It's like, there is such a, such a dialogue of what a narrative is and how it should be told. Um, right. And depending on the context of the narrative and there's such a, I don't know. There's such this measured style that Gordon Willis as the cinematographer and Pacula as the mm. director, it just, that goes about telling the story. So the, the hyper stylization and over dramatization when it's around this story feels really gross. It's just like, you don't need mm -hmm. to be more dramatic than government institutions lying mm -hmm. and spying on one another mm -hmm. and, and using massive amounts of public funds just to, mm -hmm. to to swindle the entire populace, right? Like they, they, there's not, mm -hmm. there's not, there aren't things that are more exciting. Perhaps that's my opinion, but like, and people who listen to this podcast, certainly. So when I'm watching that, I just, everything's this, everything's cloak mm -hmm. and dagger and BS and Liam Neeson, mm -hmm. Liam Neeson has played understated characters before. I think of like when he's younger age, he played like in the mission you know, he's, he's playing second or third yeah. fiddle to Robert De Niro, et cetera, but he's kind of grown into Liam Neeson. And so you just see this right. big giant Liam Neeson guy mm -hmm. and it's just inescapable. Whereas Hal Holbrook's very yeah. unassuming and it's mm -hmm. someone of that caliber and type, um, a much, you know, a character actor of a different caliber with mm. a little bit of muting some of that style. I think I could handle it, but I, I've never made it through it. So in short, right. <laughs> um, if you make it through it, I commend you. I commend you <laughs> to get through maybe, it. Maybe that'll be my project. Maybe <laughs> I'll do a podcast that's like, like oh, one felt um, minute. Mark felt minutes. One yeah, felt yeah. minute. Yeah, I'll, that's that's uh, my or new dream. Just call my, it my new aspiration. I think you just need to call it heartfelt. That's <laughs> heartfelt. I heartfelt. heartfelt. Yes. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, speaking of stylization, I like how. Gordon Willis and Pakula let the shadows kind of speak for themselves. Yes. There's not an overt stylization. R rather, it's just you see these gigantic institutions kind of dwarf these characters when they're in the halls, when they're mm. in libraries and whatnot, going through the different um, library cards and whatnot. He, um, I think I think Todd Haynes has taken kind of a, a page from Pakula and, and Willis's a book when he did Dark Waters, yeah, Dark Waters, which is a great, yeah, so excellent, good. and a, a, but, and and a not talked enough about film because I think a lot of people are like, oh, why is Haynes doing this kind of courtroom thing? Yeah. But it's actually mm -hmm. really terrific. So yeah, yeah, if anyone's listening, um, keep an eye out for it. And it, it, it's already out in the states, but in Australia it comes out in March, I think. So you guys will yeah. around the time this episode is released, seek it out. Very mm -hmm. good. Mark Ruffalo Definitely and way out. way better in my mind in this than in say Spotlight. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I think 
I think Dark Waters has a lot of the DNA mm-hmm. of all the presidents men. It's a little bit more stylized. It, it's yes. definitely the Haynes film, but I think um, I think the way in which these gigantic institutions feel gross. They feel very yes. shady. Even 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 though that Woodward and Bernstein are effectively the heroes of, of this story, there's still the impression that they're working. They're also working for a different kind of institution. You have these gigantic rooms of just writers that are just kind of blend in and like i love the sound design of this film also Mm -hmm. where you just hear conversations and people doing their own work and it's just fully operational and as large and as um forbidding as any governmental institution yes and and when you're there that's what you love is no one's stopping to marvel at their work no one's going wow you've got the most important story in the paper they're just doing their thing, like because there yeah. are, at that moment, there are you know the ramifications of what the story is don't are inconsequential to the telling of the story, right? So right now, mm. like there are still people grinding on the phones right next to me. You know, Woodward's grinding for his story, and someone else is grinding mm. painfully on another phone and scribbling notes and taking down things mm. and co- getting things off to copy editors so that they can add to mm. different stories or, or go and have a chat yeah. with their copy desk or whatever. It's just mm. that's that's the it's it, it is a machine. And, and yeah. also it's a, it's kind of got that same, that same feeling of right at the beginning of the film, you've got Jack Warden's Harry Rosenfeld, little editorial team, and then goes into the next layer of editorial with Martin Balsam. And then you've got the other layers of all the teams. And then as you can see, there's sort of this, the importance of the story starts to elevate. You start to see the collective of all these guys gathering together and they're all able to be in the same mm-hmm. dialogue. And so it's just one of those mm-hmm. interesting things that you start to see these guys and importance of the story to the paper be pulled mm-hmm. up. Like this is important to the paper. This is important to our identity. We're going to bring it up to the very high. And you guys are allowed to sit in this room, which is not mm-hmm. hierarchically, not cl- you're not in this class. You're not in first class, so mm-hmm. to speak, but you're mm-hmm. allowed to be here for this story. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by the end of the film, you know it's the a job that they've had to do, and it's nothing really more than that to them, I think. Yes. And like one of the last shots is just them working on their story, Still kind of going. in the background. In the background, and and at, at that moment, a few people huddling around a an inauguration because it was the second one from the election, as they're sort of still grinding away publishing story after story um, before the mm-hmm. end. But it's just like these guys are still going to keep working. That's yeah. that's what that's what it is. They're still going to keep working. Mm-hmm. There's no there's nothing else they're going to be able to keep doing. This is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And also, what I love is the implication that you know that this is not the only job that they're doing. Like no. they're working on other stories. <laughs> this is just one of their assignments that they have to be on. Yes. You can see, like on each reporter's respective desk, so many notes that are not applicable to this story. <laughs> yes. Or, there are other assignments of their their other their other jobs. Yes. Well, this has been another great job talking to you, my friend. Uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you again, Mr. Kyle Turner. Um, guys, if you want to follow Kyle, you must. You simply must um, on Twitter at at Kyle Turner. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you for nostalgic uh, uh, moments shared between little. Uh, film geek collectives trying to make a break into the biz. Um, and thank you for watching another movie that was on your, uh, uh, your blind spot list uh, to be a part of this show. I really appreciate it, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much again for having me. It's always such an incredible joy to be able to speak with you about 
great work uh, about the process of writing itself. Really, really incredible. And I feel very fortunate that you keep picking movies that I've been meaning to see and like <laughs> making making them a priority for me to see. And, and, I'm happy to keep- and, and letting me be fans of new things, oh. a fan of new things. Well, that's great. Look, I'm happy to keep curating, and uh, and I'm sure that somewhere in the next, you know, we're now at episode 20 of all the President's Minutes. I'm sure in the next 118 episodes, Kyle will be back to fantasy cast the All the President's Minutes musical. Uh, so, yes. I mean, I think we started. I'm going to use that. We started a tradition, and I think it really <laughs> needs to happen. I'll try and find a particularly dramatic moment, um, <laughs> maybe when Dustin Hoffman is running with Sally Aitken back through the newsroom because he mu- he must uh, she must tell. Woodward the story of the Canuck letter I think that that's very dramatic enough and uh, for us mm-hmm. to kick off so we'll definitely be back mate thank you so much again you're the best thank you thank you thank you very much to my friend Kyle Turner for joining us on the show again Kyle as you can hear is just the best um, if you want to follow him the best place to find him is on Twitter and his handle is at Tyle Kerner which is at T-Y-L-E K-U-R-N-E-R. That is the absolute best place to leap off and find him at all his other bylines around the place. Um, And you'll see his writing is just as good as he's talking. Thank you so much again for listening to all the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and producer of Increment Vice, as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at OneBlakeMinute on Instagram and on Twitter, or to oneheatminute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show if you guys want to support us we have a link on oneheatminute.com to our patreon if you can spare even a couple of bucks a month the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show the amazing increment vice and any other amazing shows that are a part of one heat minute productions thank you so much in advance if you can't support us you don't have the cash that's totally fine but please subscribe rate review and share the shows we would love if you are digging the show share them with like-minded film folk around the place thank you so much once again for listening to this episode we'll catch you on another episode of all the president's minutes and another episode in the one heat minute productions feed very soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.